Well, Acts chapter 5, we come to in our series, and when we uh, uh, picked up last time in Acts chapter 5, at the beginning in Acts 5, 1 through 11, uh, we come to a very serious time. Good things are happening within the church from uh, chapter 1 to chapter 4, but about chapter 4, things start turning a bit south for the early church. The Sadducees are getting worked up and angry that the preaching of Christ and the growing numbers of Christians that are taking on uh, this uh, as their mission in life is starting to really concern the religious establishment. And so they start turning up the heat. And uh, while that's going on, the church is dealing with external or outside influences And then in chapter 5, we see that the struggles of being a church also come from within. Ananias and Sapphira, leaders within the church, lie about what they gave to the church and make a big show of it. And God, in His justice and in His righteousness, um, gives them a death sentence. He, He causes them both to die. And in a moment where, as a church, you would think that they're ready just to give up. I mean, if you imagine today that by the end of this service, uh, God is going to have two of us fall dead because of our sin, I think a lot of us wouldn't want to attend the next Sunday, right? And so the church is at a place of of kind of great turmoil and struggle. They're seeing it from the outside. They're getting nailed by it from within. And you would think that the church would batten down the hatches and just say, you know what, uh, let's, just, let's just slow things down. Things are getting a little out of hand. But that isn't what they do. Our text today is going to tell us that now more than ever, people are going to come to know Jesus, that more miracles are going to take place. Many signs and wonders are going to take place in Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 42. And while they do it, this recurring theme that's going to happen over and over and over again is going to become true. And that is they're going to preach, proclaim, and the establishment's going to come and threaten and beat them up and imprison them and tell them to stop preaching the name of Jesus. And then they'll go and do it again. And then the establishment will come, address them again and again and again. And so all of this little herky-jerky kind of relationship that's going on between the Christians and the early church and the religious establishment is going to cause the church to have to answer a question. And that is when the going gets tough, when things aren't altogether going the way that the church wants it to, is the church going to close up shop and give up, or are they going to become more persevering, are they going to become more committed to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ to a lost world? Today we're going to see that they choose the second option. Even though the going gets tough, even though the opposition seems to be stiff, we are going to honor God and we are going to be bold because they prayed that in Acts chapter 4. Lord, when opposition comes, we want to be bold, we want to be courageous for you and your kingdom. So give us the words to say so that we can fulfill this work. Now as us, as believers, we live in a time of relative peacefulness. Every once in a while we'll get a little static, usually from the media, about how bad we are, how bigoted we are, how how old-fashioned we are. But for us, many of us, we go in and out of our day without any real pushback about our Christianity. But what happens when that pushback comes? Are we ready for it? Are we a church that looks forward to having some pushback that will show us that we are on the right track in serving the kingdom of God and saving souls? For many of us, we think we don't want those days to happen because if those days come, it will become harder and harder to serve and honor God with our lives. There will be opposition. But what we're going to learn in our text today is that God uses the hard things to give himself more glory. God uses the hard things in Christians' lives in some ways to grow us. God uses the hard things in life, quite frankly, we're going to see today, because God's got a sense of humor, and he wants to show how powerful he is and how weak the opposition is. You see, this morning, uh, as I read this passage, and we'll kind of break it down, we'll read it in chunks, it's a long passage of Scripture, 
uh, I'm reminded as I read what's going on of an old TV show that I used to watch as a kid. Now, I watched it in syndication. It had already gone through its primetime run. But it was a story of a group of men who were POWs in World War II. The name of the show was Hogan's Heroes. How many remember that show? Show of hands. All right, so there's a lot of old people out there. Okay. And Hogan's Heroes, you would think, how can you have a comedy sitcom, if you will, about a POW camp in World War II with the Nazis? How in the world could you do it? Well, they did it masterfully. And the whole premise was, is even though Hogan and his little ragtag group of POWs were in a German camp, without a lot of liberties, without a lot of opportunities, they saw it as the greatest opportunity to be held in the German POW camp because from there they could run all kinds of secret operations and they made the captors feel like they were in charge when they weren't. And they would make the Nazi captors look absolutely ludicrous because they, the prisoners, were running the show. This morning, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture where the church is imprisoned. And the Sadducees think, we're in charge. We're the powerful ones. We are the ones who um, are calling the shots. When in fact, they are not. When in fact, that the real ones that are stealing the show, if you will, are the prisoners and the God whom they serve. And so this morning, we look at a passage of Scripture that's going to teach us what it means to be one of heaven's heroes. What does it mean for us to be followers of Christ in the good times and in the bad? And the early church declares that to us. And so let's look to the text. If you haven't gotten there yet, Acts chapter 5 verses 12. And let's just read through verse 16 and let's start the narrative there. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them But the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So they, they, that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. That as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they all we're healed. Now let's stop there. So we're just on the heels of the Ananias and Sapphira scandal. And when trouble comes in our lives, one of our number one um, tendencies is to just close up shop. I remember when Amanda was diagnosed with cancer and we were reeling from the news and wondering how bad the cancer was going to be and, and how our life was going to be different and all of that. And I remember saying to Amanda, we've got to pull back. We've got to start getting rid of the things in our lives because an obstacle, an issue is coming into our lives and we're not going to be able to address this issue if we're going like we did before the diagnosis. And Amanda in her great wisdom said, listen, God brought us to this place with a mission. He brought us every day. We've had a mission. We've had a direction. God has given us these different ministries and tasks that we need to do. God fully knew that this was going to come to us Why would we stop now? We need to continue on. We need to continue knowing that God will meet us every step of the way. My tendency is, you know what? Let's start getting rid of things. Life is tough. And if life's going to be hard, then, then we need to start ordering our life in a different way. The church reminds us that instead of being shell-shocked and starting to think internally alone, that we need to look and say, okay, opposition's coming. Lord, how are you going to make a way? Now, I'm sure glad I didn't stop everything because I didn't know what was going to come with Amanda. And God has shown us that staying the course was the right direction. He does this with the church. The church hits an obstacle. It could have given up, but it doesn't. And notice why it doesn't give up. Because the church recognized, and we need to recognize, there is a mission to pursue. God had a plan for the disciples. Go and make disciples in Judea and Samaria. uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. That mission wasn't complete yet. And so there's opposition. That's okay. The mission is still there. God didn't say, hey, as soon as you run into some difficulty... Um, stop. 
No, he said, keep going. I will be with you. He prophesied, Jesus did, about the turmoil that was going to come when they preached the name of Jesus. They didn't give up. But notice what they did do. Notice a couple things that we need to do, whether in the good, the bad, or the ugly of our lives, what God's mission for us is. Number one, it is to shift well between the external and internal. Let me explain what I mean by that. Not in Acts chapter 5, but because we preach verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter of a particular book, we have gotten to see Luke's tendency or pattern of writing about the things that he does. And if you were to go back and just look at the last five chapters of the book of Acts, you would see an alternating um, pattern that's going on. In Acts chapter 1, let me explain what I mean by that. In Acts chapter 1, we see the church by itself. We see the church waiting on uh, the coming Holy Spirit. We see the church praying in the upper room. We see the church picking a replacement for Judas. But then Acts chapter 2 comes, and we oscillate from the internal to the external. The day of Pentecost comes. The Holy Spirit falls upon the church. And what happens? Do they stay in the upper room? Absolutely not. They are thrusted into the streets to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Then pick up the next part of the story, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. They go from the external now back to the internal, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. They ate meals together. They had everything in common. And so we go internal, external, internal. Chapter 3, now after the church has, we've seen the church with all of its blessing and and, and the value that being tightly committed family of believers can bring, we see in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John walking to the temple, healing a lame man, and then preaching the gospel to people. And we see that gospel message being preached over and over again until they're arrested, Peter and John, put in custody overnight. They're threatened, told not to preach the gospel anymore, and they're released. And at the end of chapter 4, we are told that they got together and they had a prayer meeting. And they shared the, the common goods with one another. And we see the internal. So we've gone in, internal, external, internal, external. And now Acts chapter 5 opens up, and what do we have? Ananias and Sapphira. An internal issue within the church. They've got to deal with it, and the church does. Now we open up Acts chapter 5, verse 12, and what do we have? External. They're now preaching and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And now next week, when we open Acts chapter 6, what do you think we're going to do? Internal or external? Help me out. Internal. We've got the widows of the church getting upset. Internal, external, internal, external. Why is Luke so focused in on that? Why will he follow that pattern? Here's why. Because I believe he's showing us implicitly what a healthy church looks like. A healthy church does a really good job at ministering to the needs and spiritual development of its people. But churches get hunkered into that and they just take care of us four and no more. They take care of the needs of the church around them, and it's so glorious, it is so good to be a part of a church like that, but it never dawns on anyone that we should share this good thing that we've got going on with other people. And so they just stay focused. Whereas the early church, this church that we are to model, had this awesome relationship with one another that got propelled out into the streets. What happens here on Sunday, listen, what happens here on Sunday should mobilize us Monday through Saturday. It should move us because of what I'm experiencing with the love and the, the grace that I've experienced by Christ and the fellowship that I have with other believers. I should be walking out every Sunday and saying, who can I bring to experience this? This is too good to keep to myself. I need to share this with someone else. And that's what the early church was experiencing. They shifted well between the internal and the external. And we need to do that as well. There are seasons where our church will hunker in and, and minister to the needs of the growth of, uh, spiritual growth of the body that we have. But then we should also be sent out to share that good news with other people. The church did this well, and we, do as, we need to do that as well. 
Number two, we shifted uh, from the internal to the external. Notice what he goes on. They served all kinds of people. Notice in verse 12, he says, Luke tells us, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people. That three-word phrase there, among the people. This wasn't a theoretical movement. This wasn't a movement of thought, okay? While Jesus preached and proclaimed lots of awesome things and awesome truths, it was a ministry that was not just a teaching ministry where people gleaned a lot of information. It was a ministry that impacted people right where they were at. They ministered among the people. Be very careful in churches, be very careful in Christian organizations where there's an ivory tower mentality of how the church is going to minister. Where we start talking about people as those people or or in ways that, that don't personalize where they're at. Notice the people that they're ministering to are all kinds of men and women. Now over the last couple chapters we've seen the uh, early church address the religious leaders of their day. We've seen them take care of the destitute people and everybody in between. Luke now is going to mention for the first time that women are converts into the kingdom of God and into the early church. And that would have been a, a earth-shattering idea within first century uh, Jerusalem. That the women would now have a part, and we'll see in the book of Acts that they'll have a very key part in the elements of the church. They were reaching out to all kinds of people, and so should we. As a young pastor, uh, there were two books that I was given in my first year of pastoring by uh, two very well-known and prominent pastors that have some of the largest churches in America. And they had written kind of their church's story. How did we become the church that we were? And there were wonderful truths that you could glean from them. But one of them that always kind of caught me off guard was that in both churches, they had worked their demographic of who they were reaching down to a singular person. And so both places, based on their locale, based on who was around them as a church, they would look at what the community comprised of, that they got down in both of their books, they have this little picture, it was like kind of a stick person, that they would call their person. And they would tell us that based on demographics, we should be reaching uh, educated, upper middle class males who are executives in their roles. And they say, this is what we've learned about our demographic. And we're going we're gonna to focus our time and attention on reaching this kind of person. And I always kind of felt that that was a little odd because Jesus reached out to all kinds of people. And I thought, well, that may be helpful to clarify some things should we ever be putting ourselves in a box that this is the only type of person we should reach? The early church reached out to all. And a church, if it's going to do it well, needs to reach out to all kinds of people, men and women, rich and poor, old and young, new to Jesus and new to Christianity, and those who maybe have got all the right answers they think. We need to reach to all kinds of people. The early church did that. Number three, they sought to save souls. Notice what is said. It tells us more believers, more and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, verse 14, multitudes of men and women. And here's an important truth. The early church could have said, you know what, we've grown enough. Remember in Acts 1, there are 120. In Acts 2, there are 3,120. By Acts 4, they're now numbering close to 10,000. And I think that the early church, if, if they were like many of us, we would say, we've done our ministry, now let's just sit back and enjoy the ride. Some of us would say, you know what, I've had quite an experience 20 years ago. I reached a lot of people back in the day with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now I can sit back and just enjoy the ride. They could have stopped and said, you know what, we've done our duty now let someone else do it. But they don't. Now they are serving and reaching out to more people than ever before. They're not living yesterday's spiritual headlines. They want to make news every day about whom they've reached for the kingdom of God. It wasn't enough that 10,000 had been reached because there was still a lost world around them. 
we as believers need to be so very careful that we don't rely or, or rest in what we did in the past. But that we're constantly moving and asking, Lord, who are you wanting me to reach today? There were multitudes of people that time, in that moment in Acts chapter 5, who hadn't been reached in Acts chapter 3. But if they had rested on Acts chapter 3, then they would have never thought to reach out in Acts chapter 5. We need to be looking to our neighborhoods and our communities and schools and ask the question, God, who are you putting in my uh, place? Who are you putting in my path that needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and have a passion to pursue them? Notice they showed God's power. They showed God's power. It tells us in verse 12, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Now, there's a couple things that, if we just read through that really quickly, we'll, be, we'll miss some important truths. Number one, many signs and wonders. You could put in there miracles. Now, many miracles were happening. Now, notice what the text says. Many miracles happened occasionally. That's what my text says. Many miracles happened every once in a while. No, it says many miracles were regularly done, daily done, continually being done. And we should take notice of that and say, wow, this is a church that was on the front line for God, and God was showing His power through His people, the apostles. Well, what are these acts? Notice the first miracle that was taking place is people were getting saved, the miracle of new birth. But notice it goes on in verse 15, that when the apostles came out into the city, people carried out the sick into the streets and they laid them on cots and mats so that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. Not only the people of Jerusalem, but it says towns from around Jerusalem brought their sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits and they notice. Some were healed, right? All were healed. Now we should stop and we should ask the question right away, if that was happening then and we are to model that kind of ministry as they did, why are those miracles not taking place today? Or are they taking place and we're just miscategorizing them? In our small group, this question brought up great debate amongst the people. And there were a lot of answers that were given uh, from what we heard from the different groups that some were helpful and some maybe caused a little more confusion in the process. And one of the things that was brought up was the reason why we don't see miracles happen today like we did in the book of Acts was that we have technology and modern medicine and those are doing the miracles today instead of the hands of the apostles. And I would caution that kind of thinking. And let me explain why. When we talk about the miraculous, we need to be really, really careful on how we use the word miracle. Okay? Um, If we were to say the team that you were watching play football yesterday pulled out a victory, it was a miracle... You're talking in language that the Bible doesn't understand. It wasn't a miracle. A team got together and did the right things and won the game. Likewise, I have a headache, and I've got this just mind-blowing headache that I can't get rid of, and I take a Tylenol. If I came to you guys and said, listen, God healed me, I had a miracle take place, I had a headache, and now I don't, I was a part of a miracle, hopefully you would say, let's not use that word too loosely, right? So how do we address this issue of miracles and and our involvement within the work and plans of God? So let's break this down a little bit. So right on your outlines, this will be helpful to you, that miracles are a work of God at the base form. God is at work, but God does more than just miracles. And I want to break down three ways that God is at work. First of all, God is at work in what I will call the mundane works that He does. The mundane ones. Now, that is not a pejorative that they're not all that important. What it means is mundane means common. They are common works of God. So, let's talk about some of these common works. This morning, the sun 
rose like it does every day. Did any of you wake up and go, Oh my goodness, how amazing. God has done a miracle this morning. Look, it's light. Or in, as the first service was getting out and the second service was coming in, can you believe it? In the month of November, little white flakes started coming down from the sky. And little kids came out yelling, it's a miracle. No, it's not. How about creation? Do you walk out into your front or backyard and look at your little postage stamp of land that God has given you and ju- it just takes your breath away? Probably not, right? And yet all of these things come from God. God is supernaturally at work in all of these ways. The giving of light and the giving of darkness, breathing in and breathing out. Uh, the land that we see, all of that, they're mundane things. They're common things. And yet God is at work. And none of these things would we call miracles. I would say that when I have a headache... God has been at work in the mundane aspect of things, that he's taught doctors that for a headache it's something going on with the equilibrium of the head. Pop a couple aspirin and that headache is gone. God is at work, God uses medicine, but it's mundane. We move from the mundane, not to the miraculous, but to something in between, and that's the marvelous works of God. The marvelous works of God. Now these, we take notice So while I don't walk out onto my patio and break out into worship and like, wow, Lord, thank you for this quarter acre of flat land with just green grass, the same land that my neighbor has and the other neighbor has, but when I go to the Grand Canyon and I stand at the precipice of the Grand Canyon, is my response to God's creation the same or different? Help me out. Different. Woo! That's a big hole. God's got a big shovel. That's pretty amazing. As I stand at the foothills of the Himalayan mountains and look five miles into the air at Mount Everest, do I look at it with the same admiration as I do my flat piece of property in Hinkley? God created them both. But one is marvelous, the other is common. And so we need to recognize that. Now in the medical world, we will say that, listen... Something that's marvelous, I go and I get my knee fixed, that's pretty mundane. I go in and uh, Amanda and I walk into a hospital and we come out not two but three because there's this little bundle. That's pretty marvelous, right? I'm not sure it's a miracle. I know you love your kid and you want to say that every little one that's born, man, that's a miracle. But listen, God, a miracle is when God superintends into the natural order of things and does something outside of that natural order, okay? When we have kids, there's an order to it, right? If you don't know that order, come talk to me after church, okay? There's an order to things. And so it's marvelous. It's grand. It can take your breath away, especially for the lady. But it is a marvelous thing, not a miraculous thing. Now let's get to the miraculous So you have the mundane works of God, you have the marvelous works of God, and now you have the miraculous works of God. Now the miraculous works of God, the miracles of God are um, two sides of the same coin. First of all, we have what we see miracles that happen on an ongoing basis, and here's where we see them. We uh, hear in our small group about someone who's suffering from a debilitating disease, an issue. They've gone to the doctor. The doctor has diagnosed, yes, this is the issue. Here's the remedy. Here's the course of the, if you will, the um, marvelous ways that God has used uh, human advancement, technology, and medicine, but nothing works. The cancer or the debilitating disease only gets worse. And we watch our friend, we watch our loved one struggle, and, and so the people of God rally together, And we say medicine isn't working. That's a gift of God. That's a work of God. We're thankful for it. But it's not working. What do we do? Christians pray. And so the first element of miracles is what I want to call the passive miracle. And it's not passive because the miracle doesn't do as much. It's passive in our role in that miracle. 
So in James chapter 5, and I've been a part of this as an elder, and our elders have done this numerous times, James chapter 5 tells us if someone is sick, they can call the elders who will come, lay hands on them, anoint them with oil, and pray a prayer of faith that will restore that person. So the elders come and we pray over that individual, Lord, if it be your will, would you heal so-and-so? Would you take away their disease? Would you take away this physical ailment? Would you do that? Now, the reason why it's passive is we are saying, God, you've got to show up in this. God, we don't know if you're going to show up in this, but we're telling you this is an important situation with us. We're agreeing on earth, and we're bringing it to you knowing you hear and answer prayer, so we're laying it at your feet. Now, he has to show up, if he's going to or not, is based on his prerogative. We're passive in that. Well, no doubt if you've been around Christianity for some time in a church, you've heard of people who have had tumors where the chemo isn't doing anything, and the people of God have prayed, asking God to do something, and the tumor is gone. And the doctor says, I don't know what to do about this. It makes no sense. It should be there. It's not. We've heard of debilitating issues and struggles that people have had that were there one day and are gone another. I would call those passive miracles where God has done a work through the passive conduit of human beings. Now this, what I just talked about, isn't what's happening in the book of Acts. The book of Acts flips the coin and the book of Acts is that a miracle takes place and man is the active conduit of the miracle. So remember Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are heading to the uh, temple and standing at the temple gate, or not standing, sitting at the temple gate because he can't stand as a lame man. And Peter uh, bends down and looks at the man and he doesn't say, okay, you're lame, we've got to fix it. Lord Jesus, we ask if it be your will that you would heal my friend here who's been lame since birth. And Lord, if it's your will that you would raise him up. That's not what Peter does, does he? What does Peter do? Get up and walk. Well, wait a minute. Shouldn't he have prayed? Shouldn't he have stopped and said, Lord, if it's your will, that's what we pray. So there is something very significant to the miracles that Peter, James, and John and the apostles were doing that are different than us. Now here's the thing. Does God still hear and answer prayers for miracles to take place by his people? Absolutely, positively, yes. Now flip the coin. Does God uh, use people in very significant ways to heal others? I will say yes with a caveat. Here's my caveat. I don't see in the New Testament outside of the apostles where a saint or a Christian had the gift to heal on demand. So, we know that there were people in the New Testament who had the opportunity to heal, but couldn't. So Paul raises a man, Eutychus. Here's just an important story. Paul preached so long, a young man, Eutychus, fell asleep during the sermon, fell out of a window, he's sitting in the window of the church, fell out of the window and died. You should think twice about falling asleep during a sermon, Okay. Paul, being a more more gracious pastor to people who fall asleep during his sermons, raised Eutychus to life. His friend Timothy, later on in the New Testament, has such debilitating stomach issues that he prays that God would heal him, and he tells him, hey, drink some wine to settle your stomach. The question we've got to ask is, Paul, why don't you just heal him? Why didn't you just take care of it? Paul had a thorn in the flesh. Paul, why didn't you just heal yourself? Because I believe that there was a season of time that God gave the apostles an opportunity to heal on demand so that they might be viewed as an authority. That they might be viewed... Listen, these guys are important. They're doing some amazing things. We need to listen to them. Now, does that mean that those miracles don't happen today? Listen, the Bible tells us never tells us that they've stopped. So be careful that you don't say those things ever stopped. They may not be as common as we would hope they were, but we also got to ask the question, when we see those types of things, and where do we see a lot of healings? On TV. 
we've got to use discernment and ask the question, are those legitimate or are they not? And so God is at work. He's at work in the mundane. He's at work at the marvelous. And yes, he is at work in the miraculous, both passively through us in prayer and actively through us when God will tarry. But it doesn't make us healers. It doesn't make us ones that people should flock to. But it is an opportunity that God gives not for us to go up in uh, notoriety, but for God to receive glory. So what do we walk away from this? Very short, and I'll move on. My second and third point are really short. So let's just think of this. Number one, be thankful for the mundane. Stop letting God's work be so common. Number two, in the majestic, lead, have it lead you to worship. And when we see issues that only God can address, we need to pray prayers of faith a whole lot more than we do. We need to be bold in our faith. And when God gives us an opportunity to be the healing conduit to somebody, we should do it humbly, and we should do it in a way that always is pointing back to Jesus and his power through us. A lot of miracles were taking place. They were showing God's power. Finally, they were setting people free. They were setting people free. It says those afflicted with unclean spirits were healed. The early church recognized that its job was to minister to people in bondage. That's our job. Our job is not to hang around free people, to hang around put-together people, to hang around people because who were the free people? Who were the put-together people? Those were the religious leaders. They had it all figured out. That wasn't who Jesus went to. Jesus went to seek and to save that which was lost. And so we need to go and we need to find people in bondage. We need to find people who are hurting. We need to find people who are broken. And we need to tell them, Jesus set me free. Jesus broke my chains of addiction, my chains of sin, my chains of oppression, my chains where the devil has a foothold in my life. And I'm here to tell you by the grace of God, you can experience that freedom as well. Notice these things. You have a characteristic of a healthy and vibrant church living out the mission God's called it to. But verses 17 through 26 tell us that we need to be doing these things when things are good and when things are bad. Notice verses 17 through 26. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel. And they sent to the prison to have the apostles brought out. But when the officers came, they did not find the apostles in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked, the guards are standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Where'd they go? Gotta go find them. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard this, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to important side note there wondering what this would come to what's this going to do to us not how did these people get teleported from behind locked doors to the temple courts so the chief priests say hey go get them we found them the look the men verse 25 whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people so the captain with the officers went and brought them but not by force for they were afraid of being stoned by the people and when they had been brought them they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying we strictly charge you to not teach in this name yet you have filled jerusalem with your teaching and have intended to bring this man's blood upon us let's stop there the going got tough and so they're serving the lord they're healing people ministry is taking place now opposition comes they're told you can't preach this and what happens suffering comes notice a, a mindset of perseverance has to be in our heads they ha it has to fill our thinking are we going to do our mission for Christ 
Well, when the going is easy, sure. But what happens now when we start getting opposition from the local leaders? They put us in public prison. By the way, public prison would be where they would strip you naked, put you in front of people, and they would mock you for the crimes that you've committed and that you've been captured. Now let me ask you, are you on mission for Jesus Christ if you are put in the town square of your neighborhood, stripped bare, and mocked for your belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? How many of us are ready to take on that mission? Crickets. I get it. But that's what they were doing. And it says that their mindset, look at the very end of the passage, okay? So after all that's transpired in verse 42... I'm sorry, verse 41, they left the presence of the council hating that they had to stand for Jesus, right? No. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. That's the mindset that we as Christians have to have. That when the going gets tough, we are going to rise to the occasion by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit so that we may accomplish the work God has for us. But to do that, our thinking needs to change. Number one, we need to remember suffering is going to come. In Luke 21, Jesus told the 12 disciples, listen, they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. You teach about me, you teach the way of life that I've taught you about, they're going to come after you. And he, step by step in Luke 21, says you're going to put you in the synagogue, they're going to mock you, they're going to beat you, they're going to threaten you, and you're going to have a choice in that moment. Are you going to be willing to suffer for this cause of Christ, or are you going to give up? The Christians in Acts chapter 5 knew suffering was coming, and they were equal to the task when that suffering hit them. Number two, they had to be ready to release some of their comforts. They're going to be stripped naked. They're going to be imprisoned. Their scheduling is going to be thrown off. Their, their neighbors and friends are going to see them very, very differently than they did before. God is going to release them from prison, we learn in the story, through an angel. But then they're going to be brought back into custody the next day. And the people are going to beat them. How many of us are willing for even a fraction of our comforts to be taken away from us for the cause of Jesus Christ? Now, when I talk about suffering for us in our day and age, I'm talking about going an hour without Wi-Fi. They're being stripped naked, imprisoned, and beaten. And they're walking away high-fiving going, that was awesome! We got to do that for the name of Jesus! Jesus saw fit to use us, even if it meant we got beaten. Boy, my back really hurts, but man, I was able to stand for the God who saved me. Can I just tell you, when I read something like that, we are really, really flabby spiritually in the 21st century here in America. Because we call suffering something that it isn't. Release some of our personal comforts. Respect God's choices. God rescues them from jail, but still allows them to be beaten. That means when you are doing the right thing, we need to respect that when God says, I want you to stand for your faith, that I might allow pushback to come. They were beaten. They were abused. And God could have released them from it, but he doesn't. Right now, you may be in a workplace, you may be in a family scenario where your faith is being beat up all the time. And you, what your initial reaction is, I want out. Get me out of here. But God may have you there so that you may suffer for the cause of Christ. And you may not know why God's allowed that to take place. The disciples rejoiced. God let us suffer. They didn't try to get out of it. They didn't try to explain their way or compromise their way out of it. They stayed because they respected the choice God had. How could they do that? They recognized God was in control. Listen, the Sadducees with their big beards, you know, I could just imagine big white beards and just kind of stroking the beards like this, you know, it's just awesome. We're smart, wise men. <laughs> we have great robes. Look at our designer robes. And we're in charge. 
We have no idea that right now the people that we arrested are not in the jail, but that an angel of the Lord has teleported them from the jail that where we're the bosses out to the temple courts. We're going to hold our little meeting thinking they're in the prison when they're not. We're going to talk about that we've got the upper hand because we've arrested them. Oh, by the way, we went to the prison and the door's locked and the guards are there, but they're not there. Uh, the, the prison's empty. Hint, hint, hint. Wasn't there a tomb that emptied not too long ago? Where'd he go? Well, let's go get him. Well, bring him back. Don't try to do anything because people might stone them. Who? Us. Because we are now looked at as being wrong. These guys are being teleported and we're having our cool beard meetings. All right? And the whole time, man thinks he's in charge. But write this down. God is. God is in control. And so what I want you to know is God is in control of your circumstances. He was in control of where the apostles were at all times. He was also in control of where the unbelievers were, where the opposition was. And He was bringing everything into order, into place for one reason, so that Jesus might look glorious. And so what we need to worry about is playing our part. God's in control. If He allows suffering, we're going to praise God for the suffering He brings our way. If He allows for things to go smooth, we're going to praise God for that. And we're going to know that whoever opposes us is within the hand of God. And we're going to give Him glory because God is in charge. Man is not. Well, that leads to a response by this guy named uh, Gamaliel. And Gamaliel is the teacher of Paul. Notice in the text, Gamaliel says something that's important for us to remember. A Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, verse 34, a teacher of the law held in honor by all people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thaddeus uh, rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up and in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. And he too perished. And all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will help me out. Fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found to oppose God. So they took his advice. And we should take that advice as well. If God is for us, help me out, who can be against us? So take that. This is the opponent saying, if God is on their side, we can't stop them. I want you to take that tomorrow into your schools, into your workplaces, into your families. If God is for us, then nothing can stop us. But we don't believe that way. And I'll tell you, we're a lot of Gamaliel because he, he believed it in part but it never says, and if they are proven to be of God, we should join them. He doesn't say that. He just says, get out of their way. And we need to ask the question, are we on mission with a mindset to uh, persevere when trouble comes, knowing that if God is for us, who can be against us? We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. That leads us to one final thing, and that is a message to proclaim. And I will just very quickly say, because it will be preached on here in a couple weeks again through the prophet and the, and the disciple Stephen, and that is every time Luke is passionate about the gospel. And he shows us the gospel message over and over again. The gospel message is preached when there's good times. The gospel is preached when there's bad times. The gospel is preached when people want to listen. The gospel is preached when people are opposing you. What is the gospel? Notice Peter gives it. He tells us in the middle of the passage in uh, chapter 5. It says that Peter stood up. They're told not to teach the name of Jesus. But verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. 
God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. So is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Let me close with this very clearly. The gospel is consistent, not only through the book of Acts, but through the entirety of Scripture. And it falls on these four points. Here's the gospel. If you've never heard the gospel or understood the gospel, here's what it is. The gospel, number one, reminds me and tells me to put God in the proper place. God is God and you and I are not. So we have a choice. We're going to worship Him or rebel against Him. We've got to make a choice today. Is God going to be number one or are we going to be number one? We've got to put God in His proper place. Number two, we need to pronounce upon ourselves our guilt. Peter tells them you are guilty of putting Jesus on the cross. And if Peter was standing here today, he would tell us the same thing. We are guilty of putting Christ on the cross. Our sins put Christ on the cross. Our sins forced the hand of God to be uh, a chastising hand against His own begotten Son so that we might have redemption. Pronounces our guilt. We are lost without Jesus. It pronounces Jesus and proclaims Jesus as the Savior God raised this Jesus up, has him at the right hand of the Father, and has exalted him as leader and Savior. The gospel is no other story but the story of Jesus, the Son of God, who died on our behalf that you and I might have life. And it provides, so it, it, it proclaims Jesus as Savior, write that down, and finally it provides... It provides and points us the direction we need to go. How do we get there? Through repentance and forgiveness of our sins. Repentance, I'm no longer going to live for self. I'm going to live for King Jesus. I'm going to live for the God of the universe. I'm not going to live for myself anymore. I'm going to see all that I've done as sin. I'm going to see all that Christ has done as glorious. I place my life at the foot of the cross. God, I need you. Lord, I need you. Save me from my sins. And God says, and this is now the path you should go. And we see over and over again that when we pursue the mission God gives us, when we persevere in the mindset that when the going gets tough, we'll get going, God will give each and every one of us a message to proclaim. What's your mission? What's your mindset? And what's your message today? Hopefully we're heaven's heroes and we will follow in those footsteps because in that we saw multitudes of men and women come to know Christ, and that's our desire as well.